news, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tailed Wowkey Specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello, and welcome to the Tail Wowki specials of Physical Attraction. But for now, we're going to talk about mitigation, and we're going to talk about politics, and we're going to talk about controversies. One of the issues you have with climate change politics, at least on the personal level, is this. I'm going to make some statements now. I'm not saying that any of them is my personal position, or indeed representative of anyone else's position in particular. In fact, some of them are the exact opposite of what I think. But just as a test, how do you react to these statements? Intellectually. Emotionally. 1. Since 12% of the population drive 74% of economic activity, which leads to climate change, they should be held responsible. 2. So what if the world's 8 richest people own as much wealth as the bottom half of the world's population? Inequality is necessary under a capitalist society, and capitalism ultimately makes things better for everyone, while socialism always leads to tyranny. 3. The differences between those richest people and the poorest people who can't afford to eat are so massive that no laws of capitalism can justify them. 4. If China and India have a choice between keeping their coal in the ground and staying poor, or burning it to get rich, they should burn it to get rich. 5. Since eating meat results in far more carbon emissions than a vegan diet and takes up so much more land, It is unsustainable on a planet with this many people. Everyone should stick to a mostly vegan diet, preferably enforced by law, starting with people in wealthy nations who can afford to be choosy. 6. The only way we can fix climate change is if the government imposes a hefty carbon tax and bans people from flying and driving gas-guzzling cars unless it's absolutely necessary. 7. The real problem with the environment is overpopulation. We can't sustain 7 billion people on this planet. Since populations in Western countries are already naturally declining, we need to impose controls on growing populations in developing nations. 8. Because climate change is disproportionately caused by people in wealthy nations, and disproportionately impacts people in less wealthy nations, those in wealthy countries should pay reparations to the rest of the world. 9. Humans are the apex species. Nature exists to serve us. It's perfectly natural and right that we should dominate and spread our influence over the planet. Since we are the only intelligent species, we are the only ones that can lay claim to this heritage. 10. Sometimes, for the greater global economic good, it's inevitable that some groups of people suffer. 11. You can either choose a luxurious Western modern lifestyle with all the conveniences you're used to, or an environmentally sound planet and ecosystem. You cannot have both. 
12. We would be better off in the long run if we all turned to a more primitive lifestyle and regarded our main role as stewards of the earth, not conquerors of the earth. 13. The system of capitalism, as currently formulated, where environmental impacts cannot be truly measured in economic terms, is incompatible with dealing with the problem of climate change. 14. Since we can't give up our fossil fuel addiction and protect the environment at the same time, we need to remake the environment to suit us. 15. The impacts of climate change are being exaggerated by political actors to enact their own goals. 16. The impacts of climate change are being downplayed by politicians to please their lobbyists. I could go on and on and on, but I'll stop there. So I'm willing to bet that you have an emotional reaction to hearing some of these statements. I know I do. Some of the things you think is that's not fair. That's not right. And yet this issue, which in some ways is a scientific issue, and in some ways you could view it as a purely legislative issue of saying we have to ensure that safeguards for the environment are built into the free market, it becomes so political so quickly and so much about justice and fairness so quickly when you consider just some of the aspects of both the impacts of climate change and the impacts of mitigating it. One of the more interesting conversations I had recently about climate change was with a denier on that social media site where everyone argues with each other. Except as I got into the conversation a little bit more, I realised that they weren't really a denier. They started off by calling climate change a Marxist conspiracy. And, you know, in science you get a lot of people who are conspiracy theorists who come up to you and say all kinds of things. But as we talked, I realised that they accepted the science. They, after a little persuasion, they accepted the projections for how much the world would warm. And they accepted that humans were causing it although they disagreed about the impacts. But they were unwilling to back down from the idea that climate science is being exploited by a group of left-wing radicals who want to exploit this crisis to ram through an agenda to remake the world and redistribute wealth across nations so that everything is fair. And that's communist, this person said, and I can't vote for that, so they couldn't support it, and they will continue to slam articles about climate change and deny not the science per se, but the motivations and importance of the science. And I tried thinking about myself, about how to persuade such a person. Because you might think, the hardest work is done here. They accept the science, they believe it's a problem, but somehow they don't believe it's a serious one, or they're just not willing to do anything about it. And there's a whole spectrum of beliefs like this. A lot of them come from people expecting that climate change won't have an impact on them in their lifetimes. And it's from people downplaying the climate impacts to arguing that it's inevitable, that the economic damage from tackling the problem will be too great and we'll just have to adapt to it. And maybe on the more optimistic side, there are people who sort of have this subtle belief that we can have our cake and eat it too. The moral hazard people, I guess you might say. They believe that technology will save us from climate change, that just in the nick of time we'll be able to innovate our way out of this and remake the world so that we don't have to give up our fancy way of living and our massive energy consumption, and we can also protect our environment. I don't know, maybe these people are correct, but I'm very, very sceptical. Seems like a mighty convenient reality to live in, the have-our-cake-and-eat-it world, especially when you look at how much people are actually investing in these solutions. But how, too, do we deal with this idea that people are using it as a power grab? Are they? Well, I think in some ways you have to say that there are people on the left wing, and I would count myself amongst this number, who see climate change as part of a global inequality, a global unfairness, 
that is inherent in a system that is currently maximizing a measurement of human well-being that is not necessarily correlated with what we want it to be, right? If the stock market goes up, if GDP goes up, if profit is generated for the shareholders, does this necessarily benefit all of us? I don't think so. If GDP goes up and inequality is going up, that's not good for everyone, is it? And if you see it in this lens as part of this global unfairness and something that requires regulation or people to change their behaviour, then immediately it becomes politicised, doesn't it? And sadly, climate change and science more generally have become an incredibly politicised issue. It shouldn't be like that, but ultimately there is no way to completely compartmentalise these things as humans. I just don't think you can divide them up. And for people who want a limited role of government, this is where they really have to say, well, if you accept that climate change is real, or that, for example, the ozone hole was a serious problem, the research for that has to be paid for mostly by governments, and the legislation has to be done by governments, because private companies will not do this off their own back. We don't have this structure of corporate responsibility yet. And I think perhaps in the future, it was very interesting, I was talking to someone about this the other day, um, that perhaps in the future, as corporations become bigger entities, like when Rex Tillerson was made Secretary of State in the US, everyone said he'd be a good Secretary of State because he had been CEO of ExxonMobil, and that's kind of like running the diplomatic arm of a country, which I thought was quite an incredible statement. But when you think about it, if we have these transnational corporations, in some sense, they have a potential to be more rational actors than governments. Because governments are set up with, you know, their only priority is to be re-elected, and so they have to get the funding for that from corporations, and they have to get the votes from people. But ultimately, they can't really think beyond four, eight-year time spans. A corporation has to do think longer than that, because that corporation might exist for the next 50 or 100 years. And if it's transnational, it, it doesn't necessarily have the same concerns as a government. It has access to more funding, and ultimately the CEO has more of a say over how that funding is used. But this is fundamentally, I think, a question about fairness. It's there in the statements that I mentioned. One of the countries worst affected by climate change is Bangladesh. 163 million people live there. They emit around 0.44 metric tons of carbon per person. Compare that to America, where this number is 16.4 metric tons. Britain, we started the Industrial Revolution first, and we've been emitting carbon longer than anyone else, so per person we've probably emitted more carbon, even than the Americans. We've grown rich from it. Can we now turn around and tell other people that they need to leave their fossil fuels in the ground for the common good? Whose good is that really for, when we've already reaped the benefits and made our society into the modern society that it is, by exploiting the reserved energy from fossil fuels? China has 10 times as many people, and per person emits around 20 times the carbon of Bangladesh. Although we should point out that who knows how much of that is for exporting goods to the US, and how much the Chinese people benefit from. Yet Bangladesh suffers. It's a low-lying country. Most of it floods every year, and the percentage that floods each year is getting higher and higher and higher. And eventually, chances are, by the end of the century, very small areas of this country are still going to be inhabitable. I mean, if you think the Syrian refugee crisis at the moment is a serious problem, when sea level rise starts swallowing entire countries, what will it look like then? And even within countries, of course, there are huge disparities in terms of how people are responsible and how they're impacted. If you're wealthy, you're responsible for more CO2. If you're a rural farmer, probably hardly any. If you live inland, you'll probably be okay for longer. On the coast, or if you depend on a fragile ecosystem for food, not so much. 
and here again we see so many problems that are politicised. If you think that global inequalities are a huge problem that needs to be addressed, and have your own ideas about how they should be addressed, then this issue speaks to you more. If you think that people who shed tears about the starving masses while continuing to live their own luxury lifestyles are hypocrites, then the global inequality aspect of it is different. Some of the most hated people in this thing are people who are very wealthy lecturing others about climate change. Al Gore, for example, has become a lightning rod of criticism for people who deny this sort of thing, and they say, oh, it's a get-rich-quick scheme that's cooked up by him, which is ridiculous, because obviously he was not involved in any of the science behind climate change originally. But, you know, popularizers and so on come in for a lot of stick. And I think it is because people do get this sense of unfairness, that there are people who are living luxury lifestyles, who are hypocrites and lecturing everyone else. And some people, they do care to differing degrees about this issue. Some people are fine with things being biased as long as they win. Some people's livelihoods and lifestyles will be less affected by mitigation efforts, and other people are going to be thrown completely out of whack. I mean, if you are a coal miner, this is going to have an impact on you. And so, of course, you know, you have to have some level of bias in any society amongst all kinds of different people. Then there's the question of state versus free economies. It's so clear that the systems we have are uniquely badly designed to deal with this kind of problem. We have democratic governments with term limits of four to five years, on which time scale you're unlikely to see a major tangible difference in the situation. So there's no pressing incentive to act there, really. We have a capitalist economic system, with some controls, with some regulations, but the underlying driver remains profit. But this notion of maximising value and profit for shareholders is completely insensitive to the damage that you do. If you can maximise profit in the short, medium or long run by exploiting the hell out of your workers or screwing up the environment, and no one's going to penalise you for that, you'll do it. And there's not much mechanism in the system, as it's presently framed, for people to care about this stuff. The only real ways are if government forces them, which people on the right won't like, or if we the people, through collective action or boycotts or not investing, or whatever, make it unprofitable for them to behave in environmentally irresponsible ways. But when the economic benefits of being environmentally irresponsible are so tantalising, when we're all complicit, and when there's a consensus among the big corporations that they're all doing the same sort of thing, it's difficult to see that happening either. Then there are personal liberty questions. If I want to skydive, and I'm not very good at it, and I end up breaking my limbs, and the NHS has to pay for it, and the state has to pay for taking care of me uh, after I've broken all of my limbs, is it the job of the government to stop me from doing that dangerous thing, because it can harm everyone? If I want to fly around the world following Radiohead on tour, and I can afford to, is it the job of the government to stop me from doing that? If I want to burn barrels of oil in my back garden for the hell of it, where do you draw the line? You can even look at this from the point of view of someone we've mentioned a lot on the show, Nick Bostrom, and other futurists and people who study existential risks. The idea I'm talking about is the discounting the value of future lives. If you accept that humans will survive the coming centuries, then you probably also anticipate that civilization will exist for thousands, if not millions of years with trillions of human lives to follow ours. If we're in it for the long haul, if we're going to spread amongst the cosmos, then we must be the early humans. Yet our actions today could have devastating impacts on the humans of the future. Consider things in larger terms. Let's say we carry on doing what we're doing for another couple of centuries. Eventually, regardless of what you think of the projections, the temperature will rise to the point where huge parts of the Earth become uninhabitable. 
ecosystems will be ravaged and destroyed. Perhaps the number of people who could survive on such an altered world, what you might call the carrying capacity of the Earth, is reduced by a factor of 10, or 100. Now people will say stuff like, oh well, you can always improve technology and we did so in the Green Revolution and that allowed more people to live, but I mean if you think about it, if you do something that damages the Earth, then you're still reducing the maximum possible carrying capacity, even with some new technology, right? If half the Earth is uninhabitable, and you're turning the other half into these perfect, wonderful farms, then, you know, you could have done it with the whole Earth and had twice as many people live on it. So it doesn't really hold water, the technological argument there. So in that sense, what have we done if we've reduced the carrying capacity of the Earth by our actions today? We have effectively to secure a more luxurious life for ourselves, ensure that hundreds of people in the future will never be born. Can you even do this kind of mathematics? Does it make sense to discount future lives like this? Does it make sense to count them? Here's another point of view. The costs of climate change are starting to mount. For example, the recent storm season was probably exacerbated by climate change. Note that scientists are very reluctant to talk about direct causation in these extreme weather events. This is because there's a degree to which they're stochastic or random, especially the beginning of these events. And this owes to fundamental physics and fluid mechanics. So what they do in a typical attribution study is it works like this. They run, say, a thousand simulations of the world where the temperature increase due to human influence is included. And then they run a thousand simulations of the world where the temperature increase is not included. Let's say that in the human influence world, a hurricane season like the one we just had happens ten times. And in the natural world, it only happens twice. Then you can make a statement like, our modelling supports the conclusion that the anomalous hurricane season was made five times more likely by climate change. But is that the same as saying it's caused by? Well, no, because your modelling does suggest that it would have happened anyway two times without the human influence. But then again, if something is made a hundred or a thousand times more likely, is that causation? I mean, if you get drunk and crash your car, was the crash caused by the alcohol? You might have crashed anyway, after all. Maybe you have an odds of one in a thousand of crashing in any journey. But it's disingenuous to imply that the fact that you're plastered didn't enter into it. So we're already in a confusing regime here. How much of the storm's damages are because of climate change? And then we can move on to other questions. For example, here at Oxford, there are groups of people who try to do politically interesting attribution studies. Hurricane Sandy was worsened by climate change, and that cost more than $2 billion. Developing countries that suffer from rising sea levels and extreme weather events, well, they may well need between 140 to $300 billion every year by 2030 to help them cope. And that cost will only increase by 2050. They project that it will double. That report is the Adaptation Gap Report of 2016 by the UN Environment Programme, by the way, if you want to read it online. And you can see where the money is going to be spent on and what, where it's coming from at the moment. And, you know, that obviously they don't have anywhere near that level of funding at the moment. The main difference in those estimates, though, it depends on what you include as a cost. Insulating low-lying cities against coastal flooding that's increased in probability, fine. But what about the deaths in healthcare from heat waves or additional requirements for cooling systems in cities? That kind of debate. If more buildings need air conditioning, whose job is it to pay for that if it's down to climate change? But it will be billions of dollars, so who pays? Well, under total laissez-faire, the burden falls on the people who are impacted the most. Since these are often the people who don't benefit the most from carbon emissions, and who aren't historically responsible for most of the environmental damage, 
That doesn't seem at all that fair. If you want to do things in a fair way, though, who do you target? So there are even studies now that will look at an extreme weather event and try to assign a percentage. Emissions from the EU are 30% responsible, China is 30% responsible, etc. Obviously, this will never actually translate into actual policy, because no one's going to force them to pay up like this. But it can cause debate. Or, do you go for the radical view and go for the fossil fuel and oil companies? After all, there is now substantial evidence that they knew about climate change long ago and engaged in a systematic campaign to cover it up. As early as the 1950s, the initial scientific indicators were there. Actually, you know, you can go back even further than that to Arrhenius at the turn of the century, where he talked about carbonic acid in the atmosphere gradually increasing the Earth's temperature. By the 1980s and the 1990s, internal policy memos in big oil companies indicate that they had a role to play here. So there was a team that was convened in 1998 by the American Petroleum Institute, the country's largest oil trade association, whose member companies include BP, Chevron, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil and Shell. Let's see Rogue's Gallery right there. They outlined a roadmap for climate deception, including a plan to cultivate purportedly independent scientists as climate misinformers, spreading doubt and confusion. The mantra was uncertainty. The campaign would achieve victory, according to the memo, when, quote, average citizens believed that the results of climate science were uncertain. The memo, which you can read online, says, quote, Until climate change becomes a non-issue, meaning that there are no proposals to thwart the threat of climate change, there may be no moment when we can declare victory for our efforts. End quote. So there's an argument to be had that since most emissions can be traced to a few companies, they should be the ones who pay for the cleanup. Is that fair when we, the consumer, drove the demand of the fossil fuel industry and benefited from the burning of fossil fuels? As much as you don't want to defend these global supervillainish actions from the fossil fuel lobby, they would have a point in arguing that perhaps they can't be held solely to blame. And certainly if you put them on the hook for hundreds of billions of dollars of mitigation and adaption costs, they'll all go bankrupt, so that doesn't solve anything. The question of blame and responsibility can seem like an academic one until the issue of payment gets involved, when suddenly people are a lot less willing to talk about it academically. Similarly, many of us might agree that it's disgusting that, for the price of a cup of coffee where I live, you could feed whole families elsewhere in the world. But if it came down to, say, going into a sealed voting booth and voting whether I'd happily redistribute 90% of my wealth to the rest of the world, it's not that much, I am a student... Well, it would be dishonest of me to say that I'd do that, wouldn't it? So how can I expect others to do the same? These aren't easy questions. There are no easy answers. I'm just pointing out a tiny sample of the issues that mean that this, unlike the CFC's issue with the Montreal Protocol, is so hopelessly politicised, on a personal level, on national levels, and on an international level. This, alongside the vast magnitude of the task at hand, is why it's proving so bloody difficult. One of the AI ideas I did like, and a book to recommend, is Donor Economics. This is by Kate Rayworth, who works at the Environmental Change Institute here in Oxford. It talks about the ideal solution for developing humanity, not just as maximising one thing, but operating within a range. We have needs. Food, water, healthcare, energy, employment, housing, communications, social equality, peace, prosperity, justice under the law, the pursuit of happiness, that kind of thing. But there are also environmental boundaries that trying to satisfy some of these things could cause us to transgress. Climate change, acidifying the oceans, losing biodiversity, extracting too many resources, overloading with chemicals of fertiliser, using too much fresh water, etc. So we have to operate in that optimal Goldilocks zone for human habitation, providing ourselves with sufficiency to meet these fundamental needs while not transgressing the boundaries 
on our shared planet that will lead to rack and ruin. What this is about, according to Kate, is a change of mindset. Growth is not growth unless it's sustainable. The metrics that we're using to quantify whether we're doing well as a society are all wrong. As we've talked about, as has happened recently in the West, if your GDP increases while your income inequality also increases, is that a good development, the kind of thing you want to encourage? If all the money from the economic recovery goes to the wealthiest, or if the recovery actively redistributes wealth to the richest people, it might be growth, but it's not the right kind of growth. It's not good for the reason that people think the rising stock market is good, because they implicitly assume that we'll all benefit from it. So once the measure no longer tracks with the underlying thing you want to maximise, it's no longer a good measure. Similarly, we need to rethink development. Development that's unsustainable, or doesn't provide some benefit for everyone, is not good. Kate Rayworth argues that we need a new mindset, to switch from an extractive mindset, where the question we're asking, as individuals and businesses, governments too, is how much can I get out of this? We switch to how much value can I generate? Not how much can I have, but how much can I make things better? So I think at this point, I've pretty much thoroughly introduced you to various issues and concerns at play in dealing with the problem. So we'll go through the briefest of timelines of current and possible future events. And when I was scripting the show, I talked to one of my dear friends about it, and her reaction was basically, here's a radical idea. How about we stop pointing fingers at each other and just do whatever we can to fix it? Each person should contribute to this global effort according to their responsibility and ability to help. So enough about why it's hard. Next episode, we'll talk about what's actually being done and what we actually could do. You better make some preparations. There's no time for hesitations. Compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. Do get ready.